0: There. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions, because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My guest today is Matt Creasy, who's a therapist at Avenues Counseling Center in St. Louis, Missouri, and a recent graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary. Despite holding two master's degrees, Matt prefers to describe himself as a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He's a good friend of mine that I've had the pleasure of getting to know since moving to St. Louis. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Creasy. Well, Matt, Creasy, thanks so much for joining me. This is been, um, yeah, it, we haven't known each other super long, but I feel like it's been a super huge blessing to get to know you, getting connected with Central West End Church. Uh, so quickly moving to St. Louis And so you are a recent grad of Covenant Seminary. Uh, You received your Master's of Divinity and Master's of Counseling. And currently you're at uh, Avenues Counseling Center in St. Louis. And so I want to start off today by asking, you know, what's been your own career journey and what has it been like to have part of your job description as, quote unquote, loving somebody? Mm, Good question. Um, Well, my
1: career path, like a lot of people, hasn't exactly been a straight line. There was uh, a lot of testing and figuring things out. But uh, back in 2013, my wife and I spent a couple of years. So 2013 to 2015, we spent a few years in London, England with a, a missions organization called Surge. And we we did what they call their apprenticeship program, which is a, you get a chance to Work cross culturally in a ministry context, and um, you also get trained and um, get to essentially test the call and see is this a good fit for a career. And uh, we really enjoyed it. We really we we loved not only the city, but I particularly enjoyed professional or vo- vocational ministry. Right, and so that was what led us to St. Louis to get some more training before kind of the next step. So right now we're actually in a place where the next step, whether it's back to London or elsewhere, is a, is a big question mark which has been kind of an interesting place to be. I think probably a lot of people can resonate with that after this year of COVID. It's like, uh, the future mm-hmm. feels like a big question mark.
0: Totally, yeah.
1: And uh, so, yeah, that's where But the idea is it's some sort of professional ministry uh, direction where I definitely feel a lean towards pastoral ministry, but also have really enjoyed counseling. And I, um, I have a lot of grand ideas in my mind how those things go together, but you know, we'll see how how things actually flesh out in real time and space in the in the in the future, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But to your question of what is it like to have to love somebody professionally? <laughs> your your job to love people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. I think that you know, both as somebody who's worked in a ministry context, where I was a you know on staff with a church, and as a therapist, there's a little bit of um, there is a pressure to at least that i have felt to in some ways act like you care about somebody more than you actually do (laughs) (laughs) to act you know to kind of put on the face of like i really care about you and i'm on your side and Mm -hmm. when inside you also feel this tension of like but i don't necessarily like this person or i don't know them all that well or i'm trying Mm -hmm. to get to know them but they're maybe they're being resistant or um and so, yeah, it, it, there's a real, there's a real tension there between, um, you know, if, if I wasn't, if it wasn't my job to be like a part of your life in this capacity, would we be friends?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, I definitely, I could say both from a ministry context and from a counseling per, uh, context, I've had people that I'm like, I don't think we, if, you know, if this wasn't like part of the job description, I don't think I would interact with this person.
0: Sure. Yeah yeah so the topic that you came to me with and I I think this is absolutely a great topic but uh, loving difficult people, you know I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. certainly I can relate to it. Uh, and so what brought up this topic to your mind? you know what has been your journey of loving difficult people?
1: Well, uh, well I mean r- real simply that there's been a number of people in my life that have been difficult to love. And it's something that I've had to do. Um, I mean, I, maybe not even have to, but I've been, I feel called to do. And it's something that I've thought a lot about. And it's something that I've, um, yeah, because of my career, kind of the you know, ministry and counseling, I've been, in some ways, my education has forced me to really think about this on a level that I think maybe most people don't, mm-hmm. um, or uh, at least not. And having to pour energy into really answering the question of like, what, what does it really look like to love people where they are? Which of course means if some, if you're loving people where they are, it means that sometimes you're going to have, you're going to bump into these real points of friction. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you and I share a similar passion, interest for mental health. And uh, maybe this is a little revealing on my end, but uh, something that I noticed when I started grad school is, um, you know, I think before grad school, I was very, uh, for lack of a better word, tolerant that I would put up with a lot of stuff. And after going into the field, I feel like my patience for uh, annoyances and other people sort of went down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, you know, since I was in this field where I was constantly dealing with people who had quote unquote bigger issues, um, my tolerance for people who were complaining or uh, what we had called maybe first world problems sort of went down. <laughs> and, right. you know, I think there's a degree to which that's comical to me, but also I think it's, it's real. Yeah. What's been your journey in terms of who have been who has been easier for you to love and who has been harder for you to love yeah good
1: question um, before I answer that I, I think maybe it's helpful that part of that because I've had similar thing yeah that I've had a very similar experience as well I think it's important to notice that at least for me I, I noticed my life I look back at my younger self, I, I think I was under this impression that to, to love everybody, like I was, that I was somehow called to love everybody. Mm-hmm. And that meant um, that every relationship had to have this, have very similar dynamics,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that you're going to be close with people that you're going to share with people that you're going to um, yeah. That there was this conflation of like, Oh, that means to love everybody means that you're going to be everybody's friend.
0: Yeah. You're going to go <laughs> deep with everybody.
1: Right, right. And, and I think that as I, as I grew and as I matured and as I learned, one, that doesn't actually square with the life of Jesus, that he had his three, he had his 12, he had the, the crowd that, and he didn't share as much, with, you know, the further out concentric rings of relationships you go, the less he shared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we would also say he was the most loving human being that's ever lived. So there's, right. So we're recognizing, Oh, love doesn't necessarily mean that every relationship is the same Mm -hmm. or that, um, that it means you have to be, you have to necessarily feel really close with everybody. Totally. Yeah. So, but for me, I, I think, you know, I definitely have, um, I think probably like a lot of people I've got, I've got some family members that are really hard to love and, again, what's been interesting is I've grown and as I've matured and begun to really like been forced to really dig deep into my own story, into my own life, into the, the way I relate to people, you know, the dirt comes up, right? Um, both my own dirt, but also the um, the soil in which I was grown and then realizing, yeah. oh, they're, these disfun- they're seeing these dysfunctional patterns weren't just like they didn't just drop out of the sky that there are relationships that I have that they that fostered this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All that um, history. Yeah. That there's a history here. And so in some ways it um, you know, as again, as I've grown of being having to recognize, you know, man, uh this relationship isn't what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a I had a category for this relationship, but mm-hmm. maybe that doesn't actually fit the reality of the way the relationship works. Totally. My um, my supervisor gives us a great illustration, and I think it's been really helpful for me. Is he he, um, he calls it the circles of intimacy? Hmm. And so you kind of imagine this like bullseye board, right? There's like a little circle in the middle, and then concentric rings as you move outwards. And each ring kind of represents a category of relationships. So like way on the outside, you got strangers, and then you got one level in uh, is acquaintances, and then one more level in is um, friends, and then one level in after that is good friends. And then another mm-hmm. level, in you got family. And then at the very, very center, it's like you and your spouse or partner. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so, the, but those labels are just categories. Sure. Right. And so as you evaluate a relationship, especially one where you, you, the assumption is, okay, this person is my, my parent. This is mm-hmm. my sibling. This is my, you know, uh, somebody, my, my pastor, mm-hmm. you know, they should be on this, you know, one of these inner rings, But actually, as I really look at the relationship and the way that it, either just the way it works out or actually the way the person has acted towards me, it's really not there. It doesn't actually belong in that category. Actually, the relationship kind of belongs in in a further out category like friend or acquaintance.
0: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Um, And he uses that illustration really to help people think through. Like when you're thinking about interacting with somebody who's, difficult to love and what what's appropriate what am i comfortable with them you know their involvement in my life well mm-hmm. thinking you know even though strictly speaking this I'm related to this person yeah really with well, the way that the way that our relationship has played out is really they're more in the acquaintance category and if I'm not comfortable with somebody that whose I, last name I don't know who I only see at work a few days a week coming and sleeping on my couch then it's probably not appropriate for me to let this family member do the same thing
0: mm-hmm,
1: so yeah. that's that's been a helpful category to think through that you know again that's intimacy isn't for every, isn't um intimacy is not something that is actually the same in every relationship and that yeah. there's there's that that has to be earned
0: mm-hmm. and that's
1: something that has to be thought through like what you know what is appropriate for the level of intimacy that we actually have mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah I think that really resonates with me. I feel like I've used similar categories to understand some of my own life relationships. And I think some of the words that come to mind uh, with the the statements that you said, you know, one I think is a level of discretion of of being able to uh, identify and to sort of categorize, not that you're necessarily judging a person, but just saying, Hey, these are the kinds of relationships that I have. And this one is closer for whatever reason, because it's, it's earned. Um, The other word that comes to mind is is boundaries uh, of setting up, we each have to sort of wrestle with in terms of what's appropriate, you know, how much am I willing to uh, open up of my life? How much am I willing to receive from this other person? And where do I say no? And I think that, similar to what you're describing. I want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I think at an earlier point in my life, I had a difficult time saying no, that uh, it was always yes, 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 and being very accommodating. So I'd like to sort of pause and sort of wrestle with what does love really mean? How how would you define it? And I I know that we're not going to necessarily (laughs) um, be the be all end all of defining the word love, but especially when it comes to setting boundaries, you know, what kinds of words or what kinds of ways do you conceive of this idea of loving somebody? That's a great question. Um,
1: I think the way I, I like to, something that I've used with clients before mm-hmm. that I think really helps kind of distill down um, is that love has two legs. Right. For, for love to really be functional, it needs two legs and those are the, the legs are commitment and affection,
0: hmm.
1: right And the greater the degree of both of those things, really the, the deeper the relationship and the deeper the love. right. So if you think about you know I, I often use this with clients when we're talking about romantic relationships, but I think it actually applies to other relationships as well. But the idea that you know if you've all we've all seen that couple that it's all commitment but no affection. Mm, yeah. And it's it's just this very dry, they're really cold towards each other. It's it's uncomfortable to be around them because you can just tell, like, they don't actually like each other very much, but they're sticking yeah. it out uh-huh. because we are people who keep our commitments and you know it's a sense of duty. Yeah. Um, but really, if it's all duty, then it's really becomes more about you. And like this notion that I'm the kind of person who doesn't give up or who sticks it out, or, you know, it doesn't, it's really not about the other person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, we've also, I'm, you know, oftentimes this is a very young couple. They're the, it's all affection, but there's no commitment, mm-hmm. you know? And they'll say things like we're, we're, we're married in our hearts, you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, meaning we don't need good... the
0: government to tell us, <laughs> yeah.
1: right? And then, what they mean is that we have we have a high degree of affection, mm-hmm. but there's some sort of fear around the idea of making a a solid commitment, right? They might have feelings of commitment, like I feel committed, but it's really it's it's not a it's not an official commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing that there's nothing written down. there's nothing that kind of holds them accountable to that, right. That's kind of that's sure. sort of how commitment works. Um so really every relationship you kind of evaluate like what is what's the degree of affection? What's the degree to which like you you bring like you bring something out of me, I bring something out of you that brings enjoyment for both of us. Um, what's the degree to which I feel pulled towards you and you feel pulled towards me. Um, and then, how much are we going to commit? Right. And I think that that's really, as we think about love, like that's, both of those things are working together. Mm -hmm. Um, And what, and also I think implied in that is that there's a movement when you have both of those legs, if you will, you're able to move towards the other person, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's an other focused, it's an other oriented stance that I, I, I love you, meaning that I'm, I want to create space for you to exist in my world. Mm-hmm. I want to um, I want to be about your benefit, what's good for you. right? And if both are doing that, you what you have is real love, you know, whether that's two really good friends who' just or you have or a married couple or uh, whatever, you know, that's that kind of mutual mutuality of both being about the other is that's a really beautiful thing. And that's real, you know, that's love, I would say. I don't know if you'd add add anything to that or nuance anything differently, but.
0: Yeah, well, I'd like to sort of explore that with you, because I think that it's easy to think about this, uh, those two legs, as you mentioned, of commitment and affection in some of our closer relationships or intimate relationships. And you can see that reciprocity sort of play out in real time. I think something that might be a little bit more abstract and maybe hard to sort of wrap our minds around is maybe a Christian notion. I want to be careful because I I don't think this is, you know, solely a Christian notion, uh, but sort of going back to a word that you used earlier of calling of Mm -hmm. loving people who don't always fit those categories uh, for loving a group of people. Maybe that, Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're not necessarily having an everyday interaction with. And like I said, you know, I don't think Christians have the, you know, monopoly on love. Um, right. I think there are plenty of people who do not identify as Christians who are also very compassionate, very loving, uh, very willing to sacrifice. And so how do you sort of see commitment and affection sort of playing out in some of those ways? And let's just sort of take an example of, um, you know, loving, those who are less fortunate or those who are oppressed, but you you don't necessarily interact with them on a daily basis.
1: Right. No, it's a great question. I would, um, let's take both legs one leg at a time. So let's well, starting with commitment. I think uh, well, as a, as a Christian, as somebody that follows the teachings of Jesus, Jesus told us the parable of the good Samaritan. And the whole point of that parable really is you know, where's the boundary line between us and them? Where's the boundary line between us, us, our people and the, uh, you know, the other. And Jesus really challenges that by kind of saying, if everyone is made in the image of God, then in, on some level, you belong, we all belong together. You all, You all belong to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, um, and that's usually the basis upon which you find people who are willing to, you know, you know, if you see people, if there's a degree of hate or contempt towards a group, there's this sense of like they are other. Mm-hmm. I don't belong to them. They're not, you know, where. And then there's this affinity for ours, mine, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really about that question of commitment: is where do we draw the boundary line? Right, and there's going to be different levels of commitment within the boundary line, of course, but at some point you have to like, commitments are always to things that are ours, mm-hmm. things that in some level are, are, belong to us or connected to us. And so for, you know, Jesus' answer is like, you, you humanity belong to each other because you're, we're all made in God's image. Mm-hmm. Right. Um So I think there's that. And I think if you even ask people who are not Christians, they're, they would have similar answers. They're like, well, we're all part of the human species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think, so so there's commitment piece. and Moving to the affection piece, I think affection is really born from what we would call empathy, the ability to kind of see yourself and the other and resonate with, um, right. That there's this, um, so, like, I, I think a good example of this is, you know, a parent with a child. Um, that there's, you know, every parent there's a there's a very strange like affection that you feel for this person you don't know. You know, when your child's a baby, like you don't know them. They've they have, you have zero <laughs> knowledge of who they are as a person. They're uh-huh. just like this little bundle of need, you know. <laughs> but you feel this profound affection for them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and a big part of I mean, that's complex. There's, you know, there's there's hormones going on there. There's a whole biochemical cocktail that's wonderful that just bonds you to this baby. But I think you know, kind of zooming out from that as well. There's also this element of like, again, this that's one that sense of belonging, but also that I see myself in you. This kind of like you're like me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you're but you're different. You know, and as a parent, I, I, as other parents can attest, there's also a sense of like. When, when your kids act like you, there's a little bit of that. Oh, I don't like you so much right now. (laughs) Right. But, but unless it's things, something about yourself that you actually, that you like, Mm -hmm. you know, that there's, you know, like if you're a musician and you love music and your child gravitates towards music, you're like, yes. And you feel this great sense of pride and like affection for them because they're, they're emulating something that you value. And I think there's that that some that empathy that like recognizing recognizing yourself and the other is what really produces affection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, you have that those intimate relationships where you see that. But if on those people that you just you don't bump into every day, you know, where does empathy comes from? It really comes from you know, if we're looking at somebody who really looks different than you, who has a very different life than you, a very different lifestyle than you. How, what, what enables you to really connect with them and feel affection for them. It's empathy. It's the ability to look at them and go, you know what? I, there's a lot that I don't, rec- there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I, but I know what it feels like to, you know, connect with feeling lonely. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I know what it feels like to feel left out or to feel pain.
0: Yeah. And
1: so you yeah. see that in another person. And if you're able to access that in
0: yourself, I think it begins to create
1: that, that sense of
0: affection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah like when your kid comes home and didn't get invited to the birthday party Mm. you sort of can connect with that So I think this is, uh, this is good. You know, we've got some words to sort of use throughout our conversation about what love is. And so, you know, I want to go straight to one of the hardest ones of what you've talked about with family. Cause I think for a lot of people, this is really where the rubber meets the road. There's difficult people to love, you know, friends or acquaintances or other (laughs) political figures. We can get into that later. Um, But I think family is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. And so I think there's just so many layers that makes this question so hard. One, as you mentioned, there's a sense of duty or obligation, like I'm supposed to love my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the people that I quote unquote know the best, like I should be loving them the most. But there might be an absence of some of those feelings of I, I, I don't feel love for them or I don't feel the same way towards them like I feel towards my best friend or my spouse right. or, or or fill in the blank. So um, how have you wrestled with what does it mean to love some of those difficult people within my family? And as we sort of mentioned in the beginning, where do I start to draw some of those lines? and at the same time avoid sort of what we're talking about with the Good Samaritan thing of, of not creating an us versus them mentality. So yeah, right. maybe talk a little bit about sort of some of those tensions. Yeah. Um, I think, I,
1: you know, I think, um, you know, what makes someone difficult to love? I I think the answer is always that the dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. That there's something about when, when we meet together, the dynamic is painful, it's harmful, it, it's, you know, it's difficult to navigate in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of analyze the dynamic of like, what about this dynamic is hard? You know, so, and it, and it can be 50, 50, right? I'll I'll use a great, very recent and personal example Um, my, my wife and I, we've been married for 12 years and, um, she's awesome. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, but we like are very different people Mm -hmm. and it's taken us 12 years to really begin to understand our dynamic well, because Mm -hmm. we're, um, for those of your listeners that know the Enneagram, I'm a three, she's a six. Mm -hmm. And so if you read up on threes and sixes and couples, like when we're good, it's really good. We're this kind of dynamic power couple. We've had people literally tell us, sort of half joking but serious, that you guys are a rock star couple, <laughs> because we we have these very complementary gifts and we work really well. When we choose to work together, we work together really well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We kind of we can really bring out the best. Yeah. But we also bring out the worst. <laughs> and, and, the, and and even our stories, we kind of have this oil and water thing going on where. Um, and my wife's family growing up, uh, she, the, you know, there was some difficult dynamics in her family of origin Mm -hmm. and the, her fight, flight, or freeze response that she learned was fight. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the the thing that worked. That was the thing that got her needs seen. Mm -hmm. And so she got really good at fighting, you know, like, and for me, it was the opposite. Um, anytime someone yelled in my house it was, to, it was with the intent to shut the conversation down. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, nope, you, you don't get, you don't get to have a voice anymore. Yeah. Everybody be quiet and go to your rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so because emotions were kind of seen as a negative thing in my house, they were, mm-hmm. you know, they were not to be trusted. They were too subjective. And so to, to have a conversation, to be heard, to be seen, you had to be very calm. Mm-hmm. And so I learned, I I Kind of this, combo actually, I've, I've heard people call it the fawn response. Mm-hmm. I think it's very similar to a freeze. But um, I, when, when when tensions get high, I'll either kind of freeze, which I have mm-hmm. done plenty of times before, or I'll do this thing where I, I kind of try to appease.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you placate. know, placate. I'll over apologize. Uh-huh, you know, sort of submit. Like, yeah, like oh, I got you know. Oh, can we? Um, so what? So what happens when we get together, right? we inevitably, we, we, one of the other pushes the other's buttons.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so for her immediate, the first response is like, she's going to fight, but it, you know, what's interesting is that, and what I took me years to see, I didn't see it for so long. was like, when that her fighting is not her actually trying to shut the conversation down, which is how I took it. I took it as her just saying like, you need to be quiet now and you're going to take it. Yeah. Um, but it was actually her inviting connection mm-hmm. It's saying like, will you hear me? Will you see me? Will you connect with me? Yeah. And so here I am shutting down trying to like, Oh, Oh no. You know, like uh, I, I gotta like wait until she's calm again, which would mm-hmm. just make her more upset because I'm like pulling away from the connection.
0: Totally. And,
1: <laughs> and so, you know, we have just now begun to like begin to untangle that and begin mm-hmm. to have language around that and be able to say like, Oh, are you, know, are you pulling away right now? And I have to, you know, having to create some software awareness. go, yeah, I am pulling away. I'm sorry. You know, how do mm-hmm. I, let's, let me pull pull back in. Um, and, and so being able to talk about that and maintain the connection, even though we both have very, very different responses. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You
1: know, so that's a kind of 50-50, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. but then you have family members where, you know, you kind of, I think there's still there's always something for you to be evaluating about yourself. There's always something to go like, what what am I bringing to this dynamic? But you're still gonna have people that there's going to be, you know, for whatever reason, because if they're maybe they just haven't done their self work. Maybe there is a mental health issue at play. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not, um, they're not looking at themselves. And in fact, some of the ways that they're choosing to engage you is maybe they're, maybe they're not consciously aware of it, but it's kind of willfully hurtful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to name who, but I have a particular family member who I, who I think about who is, uh, has some narcissistic tendencies. So, Mm -hmm. and in that, what that means is that when, you, when you're talking to this person, they're, they're not really listening to you. Mm-hmm. They're not actually seeking to connect. Um, what they're doing is they're trying to figure out how to steer the conversation in such a way that props up the, um, for those who are listening who don't kind of understand how narcissism works, narcissists always kind of project this false image of themselves and that that false image protects their, their deep pain that they're hiding from the world. And so, the, the, when you're talking to this person, you know they may seem very outgoing. They may seem very, you know, like interesting and charismatic, but they're not actually trying to connect with you at all. Mm-hmm. And and anytime you you try to bring out something that either threatens or doesn't align well with the image they present, they they kind of shut it down, or they will. Or, or they'll hurt you. They'll say something intentionally hurtful because you're threatening this very precious thing that is protecting them. You're threatening their armor. Um, and so, you know, I have this family member, like, it, again, and again, because I've known this person for a very long time, I didn't see it at first. But as I've as i now having language to put around it, again, I say, oh my gosh, this person doesn't actually want to connect with me. This person doesn't actually want um, to have a, have tr- like, are, we don't actually have the love and intimacy that I thought we did.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, and so again, like going back to what do I bring to that? Well, I, what I bring to that is that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to have a certain level of intimacy with this person mm-hmm. and, and it's not succeeding and it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so recognizing, Oh, you know what, really I, part of, growth for me and that's in that's in that, in that relationship is recognizing you know what I, I think wisdom would actually say we need to let this relationship be what it is because this other person isn't moving yeah you know
0: yeah yeah no I think that's a good distinction and thank you for sharing so vulnerably I think that for those of us who have done some of that work, there is that level of awareness of being able to take a step back and say, what am I bringing to this dynamic, whether good or bad? Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be incredibly painful when somebody who hasn't necessarily done that work, or maybe they're still wrestling through it, isn't aware of the impact that they're having on you. Right? Um, Yeah. And so, you know, I think one thing that can be tricky is, you mentioned narcissistic personality. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people who have been hurt by some of those tendencies in other people. And I think sometimes what can happen is that they project onto you some of the things that they might be insecure about or things that they might not even be aware about. And so what would you say, either through your own experience or through your own studies, is a good reality check for you to sort of diagnose, is this me or is this the other person projecting onto me? Because, you know, we're all humans. We're not perfect. Uh, No matter how much we've done on this journey, there's still ways in which we fall into our own habits, you know, our own hurts from our family of origin or our own selfishness. So what are some ways that you have either done this yourself or, or seen successful in terms of really doing a reality check for yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, one, I think it highlights the, the benefit of having having healthy relationships somewhere in your life or having a good therapist who's kind of can, stands outside of that relationship and can kind of give you some honest feedback, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a really crucial piece is having – something outside of yourself to turn to and go, you know, help me, help me see what I'm not seeing. Mm-hmm. I think too. Yeah. I don't know there's, I think it's, it really comes back to, I think we're, you know, really doing your own work, really doing the work of trying to understand yourself really well. And as you begin to understand yourself, you actually begin to understand others well, as well. You begin mm-hmm. to understand. Um, another thing I like to use is you know there are, there's always a degree of difference between our our feelings about the world
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then the actual world. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ideally, our our emotions and reality are completely in alignment, but that's rare. That doesn't often happen. There's usually some degree of difference,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and so to be able to like part of your own work is recognizing okay what are the what are just like what's the programming that's in there what's what's going on for me right and being able to evaluate okay you know that what that person said really bothered me
0: mm-hmm.
1: right or that i I feel really offended by what that person said and so being knowing your story well enough to be able to go okay why did that bother me and having that ability to kind of evaluate okay are my are my emotions in line with what with what really happened or is, is there something else going on here? Am I, in, you know, kind of importing my programming into the situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, there's we, we can only do that with a, a certain degree of success, right? There's always going to be a, a a little bit of nuance, a little bit of um, just gray area that we you don't know. Mm-hmm. But as you begin to understand yourself better, you can begin to you know you can kind of begin to see patterns of like, oh, you know what, with this person, like. Even when I attempt to to change, or even when I try to begin to own what's mine, is like you know what this is something I'm doing, and I begin to, and to begin to shift that. Um, and you're, and I think when you see that the other person doesn't shift along with you, that there's kind of a you actually meet with greater and greater resistance. That's an indication that oh, there's there's really something going on with them right now. Right. That there's, there really is something um, in, in them that is preventing them from, move, from moving towards me.
0: Mm-hmm. It's almost right? like a dance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, and I, I think, I think about relationships like that. And if you're having somebody that is rigid in their dance and is refusing to really dance with you. Mm-hmm. That's usually an indication that okay this you're dealing with a you know with somebody that is that you you're just not going to be be able to have real intimacy with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think along those lines you know I think that it's good the the point that you made that there are so many factors you know yeah. <laughs> relationships are uh, immeasurably complex. Uh, There are so many things going on at the same time. And as much as we, as human beings would like to say that we have control, the reality often is that there are so many things beyond our control. Uh, And so, you know, one thing I'd like to talk with you about is uh, the idea of power, because I think that there Mm -hmm. is there are often situations where people uh, find themselves in places where there is a, an abuse of power or just a power differential um, that can be very challenging. And, you know, when we're coming at this topic, they they might be thinking, you know, why, why are you telling me to love this person? <laughs> uh, like, what does that even mean? And I think there is a whole spectrum here. You know, I think it can be something as benign as a parent having, you know, power over a child, and hopefully they're using that power and authority well. But there could be situations where it's not so benign and very damaging or toxic, where there's some sort of abuse going on. So, um, how how do you sort of nuance some of these ways of if somebody came to you, say a client or a patient said, Hey, uh, I want to love this person, but there's just such, and you're perceiving uh, a huge power dynamic going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I appreciate too, that you use the word power and authority. I think that's a helpful, that's a helpful distinction there. They often go hand in hand, but there is, um, you know, we all have power. You know, we all have even like an itty bitty baby. You know that you think that's the most powerless thing imaginable is this little baby. But wait till that baby starts crying, <laughs> and and things start moving, right? Uh-huh, to uh-huh. to, to deal with that. their
0: environment around them,
1: right, right. So I think there is an element of, um, and I, I and I have seen this as a therapist. I think you know part of the dysfunction that we bring into a relationship is especially if we experienced powerlessness with in our in our as a child and you know because children do we don't we have you have no authority you know and the power that you do have is limited and it's often um your ability to exercise your power as a child is often controlled by your parents right Mm -hmm. um and so if you if you kind of were had an experience of powerlessness that can really affect the way you think about yourself and and i've seen i have a lot of clients who come in with this feeling of like innate powerlessness Mm -hmm. like i can't do anything i have no i I can't change anything um and so a lot of times the work is like figuring out actually you do have some power Mm -hmm. you do you do have some right but that also has to be kept that also has to be held in tension with you know, we live in a world with both power and authority, and there are, there are things that exist that we, we don't actually have power to, to change or to move, um, at least on our own, right. Um, and so, and recognizing that when, when that happens, right, when the, in that authority structure, in that power structure, when it, that is used, um, for the benefit of those who are in authority or in power, and it's to the, um, uh, the denigration, or to the um, there's a word there I'm thinking of, and I can't think of it. But that harms those who are under authority. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, I, you know, that's one of the. I think that's probably one of the worst evils that we that we have, right? And I, and I would say that because as a Christian, I would I would say the one who has all power and all authority is God Himself, and He defines Himself as love, right? That He uses His power and authority for our benefit and our flourishing. And so we made in his image, use it in a way that is destructive for those under power or under authority. It, it tells a terrible lie about him. And I, and I think he really despises that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, again, you're, you know, as you're thinking about, okay, the relationship, what makes this person hard to love and, and you, and bringing in that element of, okay, what, what is the power dynamic here?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, what, what, what is the power dynamic? and um. Uh, and a lot of times I think there's actually more, whoever, whoever the victim is Mm -hmm. they actually do have more power than they often perceive. Mm -hmm. And so part of a good therapist is actually empowering your client to, to begin to control what they can.
0: Sure.
1: Right. Um, but where there is true powerlessness, I think that's, uh, that's where you need things like advocacy, people who. Who, who also have either similar or have some power within a, a structure or a family who can step in, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about uh, like an abusive parent, and the, you know, they're using their power, they're using their authority in a way that's destructive. And the, and the child has no ability to get out of it, mm-hmm. right? Well, in this case, the, the power that has to step in to rectify it, the advocacy either needs to be a family member another adult family member or child services. Mm-hmm. right Ideally, that is, unfortunately, that doesn't always happen the way it should, but yeah, right? that there's a sense in which that's where I think advocacy is really important is when you have a kind of either a structure or um, authority pla- in place that is misusing their power mm-hmm. and then you need something some, you need another entity to come in with similar or equal power to protect Mm -hmm. the one who really, who literally can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I like that word advocacy, because I think that people might hear the, the sentiment of you have power and they might think, no, I don't. (laughs) Um, And I think it's so incredibly nuanced and difficult, you know, that there and and I think there's also a distinction between power and privilege that uh, Mm -hmm. there are sort of people who you know, have certain privileges that make that power a little bit easier to identify. Um, And for somebody who might be, as you mentioned, uh, experiencing some of those, that powerlessness, the power might come from a less obvious source. Uh, It might not be quite as obvious where that power is. And as you mentioned, it it might take a little bit of advocacy to sort of empower somebody or empower a group, or it might take thinking about things differently or creatively or with a therapist to sort of figure out where do I have power in my life? Where can I make a change? Where can I do something differently? Or where can I you know, address this this wrong or this injustice that I'm experiencing. So, yeah, yeah, I, it's a challenging topic, and and as we're mm. uh, prone to do on this podcast, there there are no easy answers with this. But you know, it, it's good to to wrestle with some of these these hard topics. And so, I think another thing that is perhaps equally as as challenging and hard is, and, and I think also especially bringing in some, some scriptures that we've uh, alluded to, is this idea of sacrifice, of yeah. um, the the kind of love that's described in the Bible and described by Jesus isn't always reciprocal. It's not always equal of quid pro quo, of tit for tat. And I think of verses like, um, you know, how many times are am I supposed to forgive? You know, 70 times yeah. seven. It's like, Just keep forgiving um, or love your enemy. There's such an imbalance there. Or when you throw a party, invite those who are overlooked and who can't repay you. So how has scripture and especially some of these challenging scriptures influenced the way that you look at sacrifice and loving difficult people? That's a great question. Um, I think the way I like to think about
1: it is... um, you know, I think the thing that Jesus is really calling us to God's word really calls us to is a, is a paradigm shift about love. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that I think the world that we live in, um, because of the fall, because of all, you know, sin that exists in the world that, um, I, I I use this with my clients a lot. I talk about the tuning fork. You ever seen a tuning fork? It's got the Mm -hmm. two little prongs, metal prongs, and it's got the little handle. You, you tap it and it goes and use it to tune like a piano or something. Um, so the two prongs I, I call shame and contempt, right? So shame is what we feel. Contempt is what we put, you know, put onto others. But So you could say shame is self-contempt um, or contempt is othered shame, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of go together. Um, but, the, but they share this one handle and, and I would call it self-righteousness or maybe transactional love. It's this idea that love um, is really about Meeting some criteria. if you do x, y, and z, you are now worthy of love. And so, and if you see somebody who's not meeting this criteria, whatever it is, right? You know, um, they are now worthy of contempt. But inevitably, <laughs> we never live up to the standard. Whether it's a standard we we try to put piece together from stuff in the Bible or culturally, whatever the stand whatever the quote unquote standard is, inevitably we too fall short of that. We don't quite meet it. And so that's when we feel, that's when we feel, experience shame. So again, with clients, you know, I'm listening for that, that of shame or contempt Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's where you're going to find, okay, so who says that you're, you know, that that's what makes you a bad person or an unlovable person. What, who says that that's what makes them contemptible? Right. Mm -hmm. And really what you get back to is just like there's some sort of template there for what what constitutes this makes you a good person who's worthy of love. And this makes you not. And I think really, Jesus is saying that's not how love is. Love is about belonging. You know, God loves us. You know, yes, he has a standard of what he wants human life to look like. And Mm -hmm. we've totally blown that out of the water. And yet he still loves us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we belong to him. Because he made us, right? And so that, like, loving your enemies, loving those who you know who are who've harmed you, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily. He's not saying, oh, so just be a doormat and let people do whatever they want. No, it's it's really this idea of are you willing to really to say like, well, they belong to me, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? They belong somehow. They belong to me, and so because of that, I want what's good for them. Maybe what's good for them is actually for them to experience the consequences of their actions. You know, if you're dealing with a pretty severe abuser, sometimes what's most loving is for them to actually be confronted face-to-face with, you've done horrible things that that need to be dealt with, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. Or it could mean that you do the radical thing that Jesus did and, like, they they harm you and you don't respond in kind because, oh, you broke the criteria. Now I get to reciprocate that contempt. Rather, it's to forgive, yeah. which exposes, you know, which he says, you know, heaps burning coals on their head. It exposes like, oh, I, I did the bad thing and you responded in love. I, I acted like you were the other and I and we don't belong together, but actually you've exposed that in the way that you, and then your kindness and your grace towards me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, so, every, you know, again, complicated, relationships are messy and it's complicated. I don't think it, there's a nice, easy package to answer. I think this, and that's part of the benefit of having, a community of believers, other people that with specific relationships and situations, you can kind of talk it through and say, like, what what does it look like to love this person? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I do that?
0: And I think it goes back to the word we were throwing around earlier of power, of, you know, when you exert that forgiveness, in essence, you're exerting your own power. Uh, yeah. And and power goes both ways. You know, you can have the power to respond in kind, uh, but you also have the power to completely reverse the situation and stop that cycle of of retribution. So... Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think that's a a good way that you sort of put it. And I think the other word that comes to mind is is justice. You know, I think that yeah. um, often in in our world we seek a sense of fairness or or equality, and when that is disrupted, there's such a it can feel like such a personal offense of, yeah. you know, you disrespected me or, or you sort of infringed on me or, or maybe uh, on, on behalf of somebody else of, of you infringed on their rights or, or on uh, their well-being. But, you know, I think I'd like to explore some of that paradigm shift because I think you're on the right track. You know, I think that there is this sense that God is calling us to a higher way of, of living beyond just tit for tat. Um, yeah. And so, you know, when you think about loving difficult people, I think there are very few things in the Bible that are are more difficult than this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think that it can feel very lofty. Uh, and going back to some of those feelings that that I I feel like I had before of I've just got to love everybody, I've just got to like just give it all away. Yeah. Um, there's, there's nuances and levels to that. So when you hear some of these very lofty things in the Bible, how does that sort of turn into practical for you? And, you know, I think also you're not just a therapist, but you also preach on occasion. I've heard you preach and you've done a very good job. (laughs) Um, and and so, you know, how do you make some of these very lofty thoughts practical? Yeah. That's a good question. I think the way I
1: would, I, I'm trying to, I'm struggling how, to remember how he exactly articulated, it, but I think he said it really well in that, you know, that the more, you know, the more specific that you get, the more you have to move away from absolutizing language,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that there are, um, like when it, when you talk about like, there needs to be justice you know, that's a, and yeah, there's biblically speaking, we, we have a category for that, but when you, but then we're like, okay, what does it look like to have justice in this situation Mm -hmm. or in this, right? You're you know, not just in America, but in this situation with that happened, right? It, it, it gets, you really have to start moving away from absolute language. You have to start, (laughs) and, and you're, and you also get away from like, idealized results because of the, the brokenness of the world we live in we're, we really aren't going to have perfect justice that we long for mm-hmm. you know we, we move towards proximate justice and we want and we move in that direction trusting that one day things will be absolutely made right everywhere forever but until that day um we're we're moving towards proximate justice and and I think that's the very that's the real like that's the thing we don't like because it means you know, it means like, okay, how do I actually deal with, it's actually a lot more comfortable to kind of sit back Mm -hmm. and talk very, very kind of like in like very generalized language. Like we need justice. We need, you know, you know, this. And, um, when really it's like, well, what does that mean here? Mm -hmm. You know? And I think there's, I think there's a real, you know, there's a real sense when Jesus talked about love your neighbor, he didn't, you know, he means like, treating everybody as if we're part of one big human family, but he, he uses the language of neighbor, not the person next to you, you, who you, who you're crossing paths with. And, you know, and immediately when you do that and you actually begin to say, okay, take that seriously. It, it, it kind of brings it down a little bit to that practical, like, okay, I'm not, this isn't going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's going to be messy. It's going to be really like, uh, okay. That there's not going to be a night. Nice, it's not going to be all nice and squeaky clean. There's going to be some rough edges to it. Um, and I think that's okay.
0: Yeah. That's, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's a really good point that it's, it's very easy to make excuses when you're sort of seeing things at that thousand foot level, where yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the the other word that comes to mind is is res- responsibility. That we can um, shirk some of that responsibility when it seems like oh it's too big or it's the lawmaker's job to do that or mm-hmm. uh, you know it's the church's job to do that. Right. Uh, but when you say oh it's my job to do that, you know I think it hits a little differently. And so you know I want to go back to a word that you threw out in the very beginning, and I I really like, is that of calling. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, God doesn't necessarily call us to all be the exact same person. Um, right. You know, he made us with a lot of uh, diversity and individuality. And so, you know, I think that when there are so many causes in the world that you could possibly jump on, uh, yes. it could feel like... Um, you know, I think one, it can sometimes feel overwhelming of, oh my gosh, I can't support this organization that's dealing with trafficking and this one that's dealing with Black Lives Matter or abortion or, or whatever you want to throw your, your hat at. Um, but at the same time, that also can't be an excuse to be paralyzed or or to be inactive. And so how do you conceptualize this idea of calling um, and, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to just be a Christian thing that I think that, uh, yeah. people who are, are not Christian also sort of can speak to the sense of calling, uh, and sort of, a a transcendent sense of, uh, communal or neighborly responsibility. So, uh, how, how do you think of, of calling within this context?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, um, I really think that calling, I would, I would actually, you know, go use what John Calvin said, that knowledge of God, knowledge of self,
0: hmm.
1: no, you know, and the two go hand in hand and they work off of each other, right? That as the more you begin to understand who God is and the, the world that he's made and um, the, the nature of the universe that he created, and the more you begin to understand yourself. Both your dignity and your depravity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the knowing those things is really going to empower you to to see with clarity. And as you begin to see with clarity what's in front of you, you know, in some sense, that's that's your calling, mm-hmm. right? You are just like, okay, it's one thing to talk about, you know, again, generically, like oh, we're called to love people, but when you actually begin to Deal with, okay, I'm called to love this person because they're in my life. Mm -hmm. They go to my church. They're in my family. What does it mean for me to love this person? You know, like we just said, you kind of have to know yourself to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. In the same way, like, this is my community. This is my community. So what does it look like for me, for our church to love this community? well, it's going to depend on, you You know, you know, what are the resources that you have? Mm-hmm. You know, some churches that they've got a lot of financial means, but they're a lot, you know, maybe they're, they have a lot of families with young kids. And so like time is not something they have a lot of. Sure. But then you got another church that's got people, you know, um, more elderly people that have a lot of time, but they don't have a lot of physical energy. And so, you know, thinking through some of that, both on as a community and as an individual, like knowing yourself Mm -hmm. and knowing God, like what, you know, what does God delight in? You know, as we begin to think about loving people, like that's a, that's a really kind of has to be an overarching, um, like it it has to be just a part of the context, right? Like what does God delight in? What would What would really, um, because I think that has been, you know, as we think through kind of like history of Christian mission and um, service, there's been lots of examples of people doing things in the name of love and, you know, serving God, but it really wasn't because they didn't really think through or they weren't weren't really able to see, either see themselves or actually understand like, no, that's not what God delights in. Mm-hmm. God deli- doesn't delight in you, you know, Europeans going to Africa to change them into being more European. You know, like that's kind of, I think, an easy example to grab onto, but that, you know, because you really weren't thinking, oh, what does God delight in? God delights in incarnation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know taking on the, the form of the of the other mm-hmm. and so what does it look like for us to love people who are radically different as we we incarnate mm-hmm. you know like we incarnate into this context and yeah. um yeah i think yeah always when in doubt quote john calvin <laughs> knowledge of god knowledge of self
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and i it's a i think that's a good word that we don't often use is incarnation that Jesus left, uh, not that he, you know, he he was still God, but he he took on flesh and, and to give up some of those privileges to, to sort of be with us. Uh, and the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking was, I think this goes right back to the golden rule of love your neighbor as yourself, that uh, you have to have some knowledge of yourself to sort of understand this dynamic that we've been getting at, of, of what does love look like when it's in relationship? Um, and so, you know, as we're wrapping up, I want to throw one last thing at you. Uh, right. And I, I don't want to, I feel like I've talked about this so much with everybody, but it, it's it's current, and, and this is COVID, that <laughs> I think in, in our current day and age, and I think this goes beyond COVID, but I think sometimes it can feel like the sacrifice is too much, that I'm in survival mode, I've got to take care of my needs, my family's needs, I'm barely scraping by as it is. And at the same time, I feel like there can sometimes be either this obligation, or sometimes in our more uh, virtuous times, it it can be a privilege, but uh, of generosity, of giving generously. So, you know, what does that word sort of spark for you?
1: Mm,
0: absolutely, yeah. That's a
1: great question. I, that's a, yeah. That's a word that we. Uh, I think we're. It's got. There's a lot of baggage to that word, generosity. Totally, there's a, there's a lot of baggage to that word. Can be a uh, a, a guilting word. <laughs> yes, yes, it can, and I, or it can feel, um again, feel very ab. Abstracted to a particular mm. kind of person, you know, a person with financial means, sure. you know, like oh, they need they're they're called to be generous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it does kind of go back a little bit to knowledge of self, um, because part of knowledge mm-hmm. of God, knowledge of self, that to really know y- who you are and to understand yourself well. It's going to mean you have, you have a, have an understanding and acceptance of both your strengths and your limitations and your weaknesses. Um, and so to be able to understand, like, you know, these are things I'm good at and I, and I'm, I, I, that I'm able to do well and I don't have to work that hard at it. These are things I'm not good at. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of this to offer.
0: Yeah.
1: And so then, you know, take, taking that and, and then also understand, you know, again, that if we're operating in that paradigm of okay, seeing myself and then understanding what what does God want, what does He you know what does He put in front of me, mm-hmm. um, that like yeah that you you ha- so you have encounter the situations where there may be an opportunity to be generous you know part of it I think a lot of times people aren't generous is because they're not actually paying attention mm-hmm. you know with their time or with their attention with whatever um, but if we're paying attention and we know ourselves and go you know do I have the ability to offer this
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know. Mm-hmm and to offer something of myself of my means of my gifts to somebody who could use it. Yeah. Um, even though it's hard. Um, I think that that has to come from again, that knowledge of God, that back to that knowledge of God piece, because that has to come from a place of, if I really understand what I have, if I really understand what I have. That's going to mean I understand And trust in things that I don't necessarily see with my eyes. That Mm -hmm. I actually have a resource to pull um, from—God Himself and the Mm -hmm. gift that He's given me in Jesus. I have something to pull from, so that I'm not going to be left impoverished,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that that I'm I'm able to access that and offer some, and and offer something of myself that's truly of myself right? That it's, it's truly a gift that I've said, you know what, this is something I have and I'm willingly going to give it for the sake of the other. It's a real sacrifice. (laughs) It is right. Versus, you know, when you do it out of a sense of like, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be judged to somebody who isn't generous or I don't, you know, I want to protect my reputation that way. Or I feel like I don't have a choice. Like I just have to do it. That was kind of me growing up. is feeling like I just have to do this or I'm going to be rejected. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's not actually generosity you're doing because you're ultimately doing it for you you're doing it to like appease some sort of pain inside of yourself rather than an honest evaluation of this is what i have and am i willing to offer it for the sake of the other and not you know and not really be concerned about myself because i know what i have the resource that i have in the gospel to do this and to trust that you know, God's going to fill, if there is a pain there, if there's a gap there on my end, I'm going to trust him to fill it, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's, you know, for, but for even like non-Christians who aren't operating from that kind of faith perspective Mm -hmm. that, you know, again, just, I would go back to knowledge of self, like really knowing yourself well Mm -hmm. and taking care of yourself well enough that you're able to, when you offer something of yourself, whether it's your something physical or whether it's your time or energy yeah, yeah you're offering it from a place of you know i genuinely want to connect with you this other person i really want to want to benefit you and it's not coming from a place of i want to feel good about the kind of person that i am mm-hmm, yeah. that's hard to do that's yeah. i think most of us don't do
0: that totally <laughs> yeah. all right well on that note i want to thank you for being so generous <laughs> with your time and yeah. And I, I think that it's it's been a pleasure to sort of wrestle with, with you with some of these very difficult questions and a very difficult thing to do. It's not just the questions, but putting it into practice. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQNA Podcast, visit drgabelowe.com. That's D R G A B E L O W E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNAPOD. Pod. HQNA Podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331, found on Pond5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.